all went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. They are as all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So Paul took the men, and the next day, having purified with them entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him and crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is a man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, the place. Furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together and seized Paul and dragging him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. So he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. Now some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying, away with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just come before you this morning. Lord, we ask, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, I pray that you would just prepare the soil of our heart to receive the seed of your word. And God, uh, that that seed would find a fertile place to grow. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified and magnified here as we just seek to uh, have understanding, Lord God, of your word and what your word is saying. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified and magnified in this place. And we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking of late of a resolute commitment. How... Paul had a, a resolute commitment, and I, I even kind of cringe a little at using the word commitment. We throw that word around a lot. You know, have you made a commitment to Christ? A commitment you can keep, a commitment you can break, a commitment just doesn't quite say it. 
Scripture seems to indicate the concept behind receiving Christ as our Lord and Savior is surrender. Surrender is a different word than commit, isn't it? It carries a little bit different connotation. To be surrendered unto Christ. That He is my Lord and Savior. Paul called himself a bond slave. In order to be a bond slave, you were someone who had surrendered your rights to the one who was your master. In Paul's case, the master was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, the attitude that we see in Paul, the one thing that I really want to see and focus on, hopefully, is his resolute attitude. To be resolute means to be unwavering, unmoving. I am standing for Christ. We see it best, I think, in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, when confronted with the idea, if we continue to move toward Jerusalem, that ultimately... Chains and tribulation await him. You remember in verse 24 of chapter 20, Paul said, Yet none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I might finish my race with joy. He had a call that God had laid on his life. And he knew as he continued to go, as he continued to make that decision, I'm going to stand for Jesus that more and more he was going to come up against opposition in the world. Wasn't that what we see every day? Oh, I mean, it wasn't all that long ago in our nation when being a Christian wasn't considered to be a hate crime. But you're not that far from that today. You're not that far from some of the decisions that are being made nationally that I I could see not all that far in the in the in the future where those things could be made and we'll have to make a decision how are you are how are you identified how we identify ourselves will be everything will be everything considering the the i don't know whether or not we'll be resolute whether or not we'll be unwavering if i identify myself as something else with christ added that's totally different, isn't it? Than if I identify myself as a follower of Christ. Primarily. The point, I think, of Scripture is that Jesus is our treasure. What did Jesus tell us in His Sermon on the Mount? Wherever a man's heart is, there will his treasure be also, right? Wherever a man's heart is, that's where his treasure is. What's our treasure? It's our treasure, Christ. It's interesting because I've been considering that kind of mulling over the Scriptures. And you think about the things that we really love. Okay, In a crowd like this, I'm probably not going to have a hard time finding any Boise State fans, right? And if you're a Boise State fan, chances are when you gather together with your friends, some of them are Boise State fans too, and you're going to talk about football, and you're going to talk about whether or not you think coaches are making wise decisions or poor decisions. You'd be a little frustrated by the fact that your quarterback's out, but by the new guy who came in, he didn't do too bad. You're going you're gonna to talk about the things that you enjoy. Right? I always found it so easy to talk about football. But for some reason, when it came to talking about Christ, that was so hard. And then I was challenged. What you treasure, you can't help but talk about. Think about those of you who are married when you first got married and your 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 relationship was just blossoming and all the people you'd hang out with how you would talk about the one you loved 
when we love something, we can't help but share that thing we love. Not only do we share what we love, we, we want to encourage other people to, to, to love it too. You know, man, you wouldn't believe how great this is. We, if we got a new car or a new house or anything that we delight in. The challenge to us in Scripture is that we would learn to delight in the Lord. That we would delight in Him. And that delight, that desire, that uh, love that God calls us to in Deuteronomy chapter 6. That would be evident because we want to tell people about Him. You see, that's the only thing Jesus really called us to, isn't it? Uh, in Matthew 28, we call it the Great Commission, right? Not the Great Suggestion. The Great Commission. What is that? That Go into all the world and make disciples of all men. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. That's our responsibility. That's the only job He gave us to do. To go and tell what Christ means to us. And that's what we see Paul doing. In fact, Paul won't stop. People are telling him, Paul, if you keep going, you're going to get in trouble. The people are starting to watch you. People are talking. Things are going to go bad for you. They're going to put you in chains. They're going to put you in jail if you keep going. And Paul said, I don't care. I love God more than I love anything else. And I can't stop talking about Him. I can't stop sharing about Him. And so this is the attitude with which Paul went to Jerusalem. In fact, we see in verse 16, it tells us that some of the disciples from Caesarea, remember they went with him. A guy named Nason, who was an early disciple, that's a way of saying he was one of the original guys, goes all the way back to Pentecost. So when the guys all who got saved at Pentecost, they would say, oh, he's an early disciple. He was there the day it all happened. That's kind of cool, right? To be there the day it happened. And so Nason goes with him, they lodged with him. And they came to Jerusalem, the scripture says, the brethren received him gladly. Now he's a little, uh, can you imagine, I mean he's going to the mother church. If there was ever such a thing, it was Jerusalem. Oh, that's where all the disciples and apostles were, although now they're not. They're traveling around the world teaching and preaching and sharing because they got to keep going and do the things Jesus told them to do, right? They're not going to just hang out in one place, they're going to keep moving. But Paul's coming back to that place place where it all started. The place where his whole life changed. The place where the, his life took that right turn. You know, he thought he was going to be uh, the man of the man. You know, I mean, his, uh, he, he grew up under Gamaliel. A lot of people say, well, what's the big deal, Gamaliel? Gamaliel was considered one of seven Rabboni. The ultimate rabbis. One of seven. When Gamaliel died, they said the law lost its sparkle. He was a probably the most respected teacher in Jerusalem. People would give anything to be one of his students. His grandfather was a guy named Hallel. When you study the scriptures, you realize there were two philosophical thoughts in Judaism. And Judaism today is still the same way. They follow one of two paths. One was Shemai. Shemai was uh, very liberal. Uh, you know, we we really can't ever really know what the Bible's really saying, and so they would they could 
plug anything in. That philosophy was very free and open. We would consider it to be very liberal, a very liberal concept of, of theology or philosophy. The other school was Hallel. Hallel said, if it's not in the Word, don't do it. If it's in the Word, do it. Follow what the Word says. We would probably consider that to be very conservative, a very conservative mindset of theology. And so you have Hallel. Hallel's grandson is Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, the greatest teacher in Jerusalem, his most famous pupil was a guy named Saul. So, so picked to, to become the peak of, of rabbidom that that's the guy they chose to go persecute the church. They, they hung all of everything that they had on, on Saul. They said, go get him, Saul. They just wound him up and sent him off. Until Saul was enlightened. Until the light of Christ shone in his life. And, and he came to know the truth of who Jesus was. And his life radically changed, right? Radical change. His name changed from Saul to Paul. He changed. He, he was such a different person. He changed his name. And he couldn't stop telling people about Christ. And scripture says when he came to Jerusalem, maybe a little uptight about how are they going to receive me, you know. He'd been battling with a lot of Judaizers. Judaizers were Jews who believed that in order to become a, a Christian, you had to also become a Jew. That's nowhere in the pages of Scripture. But these guys had that concept. Paul was constantly battling against it. And the Judaizers, they were constantly coming out of the church in Jerusalem. They had this group of guys down there that he was constantly doing battle with. So he's a little worried about how how he's going to be received. But what's the Scripture tell us? They received him how? The brethren received him gladly. Gladly. They They were stoked to have Paul home. They were happy to have him. You see, when we are true brothers, when we are totally, when our foundation is totally in Christ, we'll find a lot more things to have in common than we'll have to argue about. Now, as long as there are people in the body of Christ, we're going to disagree on things, right? There are some things that we can have the freedom to disagree on. There's some things you can't. There's some things you can't, but there's some things we can disagree on. But the brethren will always welcome a brother or a sister into their midst. So that's what we see going on. They received him gladly. The next day it says he met up with James. James, this is the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And all the elders were present. Verse 19 it says, and they greeted them and he told them in detail the things that had been done among the Gentiles in his ministry. Told him in detail. All the stuff that had been going on. You remember all the stuff? Remember Ephesus? You remember Ephesus, that town, that city? Oh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 500,000 people? That's a lot of people, by the way. We would call that a big town today, wouldn't we? 500,000 people? But that might be more than the whole state of Idaho, huh? In one town, Ephesus. So when we think, sometimes when we read the Bible and we think about these towns, we think they're all, you know, somehow small, ancient, insignificant. These are big places, man. The gospel went into Ephesus and did so much radical work in people's lives that it changed the entire economy. Remember we talked about it. Remember we talked about when the Welsh revival came on, um, the, all the bars in, in, the, in the area where the revival began closed. Not because anybody picketed. 
but because the gospel of Jesus Christ changed the hearts of people, they stopped spending their money in the bars, and the bars had to close. Nobody said it was evil, bad, poor, nothing. All they did is they fell in love with Christ, and things changed. In Ephesus, they fell so in love with Christ that the guys who made idols of Diana were going out of business. They're going out of business. So they started a riot. They started a riot because so many people were getting saved and their lives were changing. They were burning, they were burning books. Now, don't get the idea, but they were burning, the books they were burning very specifically were, were books of, uh, of magic. Uh, the black arts, um, the occult was very strong in Ephesus. And so they're, they were throwing away their stuff that they weren't going to have anything to do with anymore. And it was so radical. There's this huge uh, riot breaks out and then the riot gets broke up and Paul continues to teach there for three years and he, he starts to travel around some other places. He talked about the power of the gospel going to Athens. He talked about the power of the gospel going to Corinth and the neat things that God was doing in Corinth through his ministry and through Apollos. He talked about the the assassins who tried to pick him off and how he was uh, led by the Lord to go around them. He probably even talked about Eutychus. You guys remember Eutychus? That's that fellow who fell asleep. You remember that Sunday when I said I was going to film y'all? And if one of you fell asleep, we're going to zoom in and put you up on the big screen. Remember Eutychus? He fell asleep. Eutychus was, was a guy who fell asleep while Paul was teaching. By the way, it's not Eutychus's fault, man. Paul was teaching a long time. All night. All day. At midnight, finally, Eutychus falls out the window three stories and dies. They rush down and they pray over him. Eutychus comes back to life. You would think they might call the service at that point, but no, they went back in and Paul preached till the morning. Paul stayed there long enough to preach 24 hours, almost total 24 hours straight, just so he could walk 10 miles, so he'd have a chance to catch the boat that he missed because he spent so much time preaching. This is how much Paul loved the Lord and how much he wanted to be spent and spend in his, in, in, in an effort to show God, to show his love forth to him. He also brought two exhibits. Exhibit one is a guy named Trophimus. He was from Ephesus. The second guy was a guy named Secondus. That's how you can remember he was the second guy. Secondus from Thessalonica. Secondus was the second guy that Paul took. And so they were like exhibits. Look at these guys. These are guys from the church. Look how they've grown. Look what they understand about the word. Look at the giftings that God's given them. Look what the scripture says. As he told them all these things in detail, it says, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. These guys are not bummed at Paul. They're not upset at Paul. They're stoked about what God's doing in the Gentile church. But the church is kind of divided at this point. It's really two. Now Paul over and over in his teachings would say, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. We are all one in Christ. But there still was a lot of identity, a national identity among the people. And at this time in Jerusalem, a very strong national identity. It's 58 AD, 12 years from a revolution. When that revolution begins, Israel is going to be wiped out. The temple is going to be destroyed and Rome is going to grind it under its its boot. But right now, you're just at the beginning stages of it. There's all this talk, very, very nationalistic fervor of the people. 
And as Paul's coming in, that is, is creeping into the church and there's, there's this little division. That's where them Judaizer guys are coming from. You see what I'm saying? And so that's causing a little bit of grief for Paul, but he comes down there and, and he, he shares what's happening and they glorify the Lord. He also delivered that offering. Remember the offering that he brought? And they, they glorify the Lord. But look what they say. They say, man, listen to what's been going around here. They say, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. Maybe your Bible says how many thousands. Remember the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved. And, and, a, and, a, and about a chapter later, another 5,000 are added to the church, right? Josephus tells us at this time, around 58 AD, there were 100,000 Christians in the church in Jerusalem. What's your definition of a mega church? The 100,000 fit? Up to a, a, now Josephus was a, a great exaggerator. So maybe he was exaggerating. Maybe he doubled the number. Maybe it was only 50,000. That's still pretty big, isn't it? Josephus said 100,000 Christians. And here they're saying, man, look at the thousands and thousands of people who are getting saved. Jews were coming to the faith. But they were battling within themselves, not only this concept of, of salvation in Christ, but they had this nationalistic fervor. So you kind of end up with somewhat of a divided heart. Are you guys with me? It's like, well, I'm, 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 I'm all in for Jesus, but wow, you know, there's, there's some real problems in my nation. There's this real attitude of, I, I just want to do all I can do for Christ, but... We gotta get rid of Rome. See any parallels? They had this, this concept, and I think it was a struggle of identity. And I think we have it too. And that struggle in identity is, is how are you going to identify yourself? Look, I am as, as big a patriot as anybody. I served. I did my time in the Marine Corps, I actually joined the Marine Corps when I was a kid. I said I wanted to be able to legally kill somebody. And the only way I knew to do that was in the Marine Corps. And I don't know if that was the greatest reason to join the Marine Corps, but that's the attitude I went with. I'd have done anything they told me to do anytime they told me to do it. But later on, I, I came to know Christ. And that's not how I identify myself. They say, once a Marine, always a Marine. I suppose that's true. But that's not how I identify myself. I am a believer in Jesus Christ first. Before I am a citizen of the United States of America, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And should... The Word of God and my faith in Christ come into battle with the nation. I will tell you where I will stand. I will stand with Jesus no matter what it costs. That's my identity. My nation needs Jesus Christ. She needs to surrender to Jesus Christ. Not make a commitment, not say tongue-in-cheek that we are one nation under God. That don't mean nothing. Those are words on a dollar bill in a nation that worships the dollar bill, not the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And they're going to take them off one day anyway. Ain't they? Just like they took away prayer. It's all going to go. And we got a choice. We can get all rallied up in a nationalistic fervor. And we can say, oh, we're going to fight for our country to get right. And I don't know that I think that that's necessarily bad. But I've only got one commission. And it's not to make everyone a fan of the U.S. It's to, it's to make disciples of Jesus Christ. I, I love my country. But I love Jesus more. He is the reason behind everything that we need to do. So we see here where Paul's coming. This fervor. A revolution is coming. They're getting caught up in their traditions. And the way things used to be. And how they used to be able to do stuff. And so that's become an issue. The other thing is all those Judaizers I've been telling you about. They've been gossiping about Paul. What have they been saying? Paul's teaching everybody to, re- to just turn away from the law. Was that what Paul taught? No. Find a place where Paul said that. He didn't say turn away from the law. He told him the law was good. The law was our tutor. It leads us to Christ. If the law leads you to Christ, is Paul saying get rid of the law? No. All he's saying is the law can't save you. Newsflash. They should have figured that out already. The law wasn't saving any of them. Christ saves, not the law. Did he say anything about circumcision? Yeah, he said circumcision won't save you. He said, you think you're saved because you went out and got circumcised. Congratulations, you're circumcised, but that didn't save you. Only a profession of faith in Christ, only surrender to Him, only making Jesus your treasure in your life. That's what saves you. Not all those other things. But they took it and they said, oh, this is what he's saying. He's saying all our traditions, you got to quit being a Jew to be a Christian. Paul never said that. He never taught that a Gentile had to become a Jew to be a Christian. He never taught a Jew had to become something else, that he couldn't be a Jew. He said, we're all one in Christ. And all those things are, are, are tradition. And, and, and uh, you know, follow the traditions. Knock yourself out. Just know they don't save you. But they weren't evil. There wasn't something wrong with it. But listen to what else he said. Not only were there hundreds, perhaps a hundred thousand believers there in, uh, in, in, um, Jerusalem, but the next phrase, and they are zealous for the law. That's that proclamation. It's, uh, it's idiomatic. It means it's like a figure of speech that says, these guys have this fervor, this nationalistic fervor, desire to go back to the traditions. Some of those traditions were good, right? Those traditions were founded in the Word of God. That's not bad. But they're somewhat divided in that concept. And because of the rumors about Paul, there's a problem. And so they're going to tell him about the problem. Look at the problem. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. So what shall we do? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. So he says there's this nationalistic fervor, and they've heard these rumors that this is what you're about. It's, it's almost as though they've heard, Paul, that you hate your, your own people now. You hate the Jews, and you hate their teachings, and you hate their traditions. And you're telling people to leave them and flee them and don't do them anymore. But Paul never said that. He never said that. He just said, those traditions won't save you. Do you understand the difference? But somebody heard it. 
They began to gossip about it. And just like any gossip, once you've done it, you can't take it back. Once you've said something about somebody, you can't take it back. Do you get that? Once you shot down some teacher, or once you shot down some other preacher, or once you shot down some other church, you can't go back and take it back. Damage is done. The, the, the poison spreads. And the, at some point, the story's not even true. But that's what's going on. The gossip is laid out. The damage is done. They say Paul had taught this. But there's no evidence, guys. None in the Scripture. That's all I care about. I don't care about people's opinions, teachers' opinions. There's nothing in the Bible that says Paul ever did that. In fact, turn to the left, to chapter 16. In chapter 16, we meet a, a young man. You remember Timothy? You remember when, when Paul was stoned in Lystra? He got stoned and left for dead? And he walked, got up, he woke up, got up and walked back into the town because that's the kind of guy Paul was. He was tough. He walked back into the same town that stoned him and I'm sure some of the guys who stoned him were there standing on the street watching him walk back into town thinking, didn't we just stone that dude? One of the guys who was watching was a guy named Timothy who Paul led to the Lord. He was a young man. Scripture tells us his mom was a Jew. That's how you know you are Jewish, by the way. If you are Jewish, if your mother is a Jew, that's how it was passed on, still how it is today. Still how it's, how it's figured today. It passed through the mother. In Acts 16.1 it says, He came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, she was a believer, but his father was Greek. That word but means that he was in distinction from her. He was distinct how? He was distinct nationally. He was a Gentile. But he was also distinct in the fact that he was not a believer. And we never really hear much about his dad. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted to have him to go with him. What's it say? He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew his father was a Greek. Paul took Timothy, who was a Jew, and had him circumcised. Why? Because it made him saved? No. What did it do? It opened up a door of ministry to the Jews. He was saying, Timothy won't ever be able to talk to a Jew. They know you're Jewish. They know your mom was a Jew. But you have never been circumcised. And as a result, they will never hear a word you say about Jesus Christ. But if you'll be circumcised, that'll give you the door. It'll open the opportunity So Timothy was circumcised when he was an adult. One thing to be circumcised when you're eight days old, folks. It's a whole other matter to be circumcised any time after that. Let alone when you're an adult. So the Bible says Paul circumcised him. And so it opened up for him fruitful ministry. Paul wasn't teaching don't get circumcised. He said circumcision doesn't save. He said some the Jewish people were trusting in their circumcision to save them. You guys get the difference? And so Paul's Paul wanted to have opportunity. Timothy was a Jew, not a Greek. He wasn't Gentile. If he was Gentile, Paul would have said, hey brother, go out to the Gentiles. Go to your family. But he said to Timothy, you're a Jew and your family's Jewish. 
So in order for you to minister to them, you need to be circumcised. That is what he taught. That is what he laid out. Being in Christ never was required for a Gentile to become a Jew or for a Jew to cease being a Jew. It had really nothing to do with it. Had nothing to do with it at all. So they had a solution for him. Here's the solution, guys. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four guys who have taken a vow. Right about now, and some of you maybe got a study Bible. In your study Bible, there'll be a little note that says it was the Nazarite vow. I have no idea how they know that. No idea. Well, Jackie, it's simple. In another verse or two, it's going to say they shave their head. Yeah, they shave their head for a number of vows. The reason that everybody always talks about a Nazarite vow is that's the one we all know had to do with hair, right? Hey, there's something about your hair. Let your hair get long and then shave it all off or something. And so it must be a Nazarite vow. Nowhere does the Bible tell us what it was. It just tells us they had a vow. They made a vow. It's not important, nor do we have to have an opinion on it. All we have to realize is they had a vow. They made a, a commitment to God about something. And it says in verse 24, Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads, that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing. But you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Now, purification right would be required if you made a vow and were somehow defiled. Well, how would you be defiled? Well, four guys make a vow to the Lord some way, consecrating themselves for a particular time. And as they're walking down the road, maybe they hear a woman yell out, Some help, help, something wrong with my husband. He's sick. They run into the house. There he is having a heart attack. They try to help, do whatever they can, but they can't save him and he dies. They are all now defiled. They touch a dead body. What was required? A purification rite. What would happen in the purification rite? You would wash your entire body, wash all your clothes, shave off all your hair, and then you would stay separate for seven days. At the end of seven days, you shaved all your hair again, offered the, the required offering for the purification, and they all knew, everybody knew you were clean. One of the things that that helped, by the way, was in the spread of disease. Because they would separate themselves after they had touched a dead body. So this is what's gone on. Now they say to Paul, look, these guys got to go through a purification rite. There was also a concept, guys, among Jews who had spent time in the Gentile regions when they came back to Jerusalem to do a purification rite. Like they're getting all cleansed, all washed, all clean, getting refocused in the traditions of Judaism. Is it a requirement for salvation? No. Did it really have anything to do with anything? No. What did it do? It was going to open up opportunity for Paul to be able to share with the Jewish believers in Jerusalem who were so zealous. The Scripture tells us to bear with the scruples of the weak. Paul was willing to pay for four guys' purification rite. That's two days, the third day and the seventh day, they would each offer four offerings. So that's 16 offerings, twice 32 offerings, plus his own, uh, four and four and eight more. So that's, uh, what, 30, 40. 40 animals he bought. How far are you willing to go to have an opportunity to be able to share the gospel with somebody? I know some people who will not cross the street to say I'm sorry to their neighbor 
Because they're just sure, it's not my fault. Look, it's not my fault. They got the problem. I don't, why should I have to tell them I'm sorry? You won't go cross the street to say you're sorry, but Paul was willing to buy 40 animals for a purification rite he didn't need. But the point was, it tore down a wall of separation and would enable him to share. It would give him the opportunity to do it. A lot of people say, oh, Paul compromised here, he compromised. He did not, never once in any of this did he say that what he was doing saved him. Did he? No. He just was doing something that would give him a road, an inroad, an opportunity with a Jewish man to be able to share. Where was he? In Jerusalem. What was in Jerusalem? Jews. Kind of makes sense, don't it? When we look at Paul's heart, guys, you can see his heart in Romans chapter 9. Just flip over to Romans chapter 9. Take a couple of seconds. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. We'll just go through a couple of verses. Look what it says. I tell the truth in Christ, Paul said. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Paul says, my heart is broken. Who's it broken for? For I could wish... I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Paul says, my heart breaks for them because they're lost. And I, if I could, I would go to hell if they could be saved. You hear the burden of his heart? All he's doing, guys, is saying things he already said in Corinthians chapter 9, you remember? In Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, Though I am a free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jew, I became as a Jew. Paul's like, look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna compromise my faith, but I'm not gonna be so proud that I won't do some small thing that will give me an opportunity to share Christ with somebody. I will do whatever is necessary. If I need to pay for these, this purification right, I'll do it. Herod Agrippa I, in order to earn favor with the people of Israel, began to pay for their purification rights. As a result, he earned a favored status by the people. That was important if you were the king. He wasn't a Jew, but he was a king. So in the same way, Paul says, hey... If this will give me an opportunity to share, right on, I'll go do it, I'll pay. Just think, what is that thing that keeps you from being willing to share Christ with with the people you come in contact, that worker who's a pain in the neck at work, or the neighbor who's always complaining, or whatever? What do you got to do to make peace, to get an opportunity? Paul was willing to do whatever it took and his heart was a heart of love for the lost, right? There's not too many. I've never met a guy who said, I'll trade my salvation for yours. I don't, I don't believe Paul was, I, I think he meant it. If I could trade my salvation for yours, for my countrymen, I'd do it. That's what Paul's saying. That's the heart he had, the desire to see. In verse 25, they say now, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we're not asking them to do anything. They, re, they rehearse what was already told to us in earlier chapters when we talked about the Gentiles being saved, that they don't come under any kind of Jewish customary law. He's saying, look, they, 
I'm not asking the Gentiles to do nothing. He's not asking the Gentiles to become Jews. James is just saying, look, if you can do this, this may give us an opportunity to be able to reach more. 100,000 saved. We might be able to reach more if we can just tear down this wall, this issue, this this prejudice that they have toward you and toward Gentiles, this nationalistic fervor. Maybe we can tear it down and maybe we can get some inroads. So Paul's response is in verse 26. So Paul took the men and the next day, having been purified with them, they would go down into the mikvaot. They would cut off all their hair. They would wash all their clothes in their body and they would start a seven-day purification process where they continued to come to the temple day in and day out, awaiting the seventh day, the offerings that would be made and the announcement that they were now pure. It would show all the Jews that Paul wasn't saying, you can't be a Jew no more. So, he went with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification at which time offerings would be made for each one of them. Remember, the offering was given on the third and the seventh day. So in verse 27 it says, When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. The Jews from where? Asia. Asia. Remember, whenever we talk about Asia, especially in the Bible, we're talking about the area of Turkey today. The premium city... The big city in the area of Asia where the church had had such incredible success was a little town called Ephesus. Remember? Ephesus. These guys were from Ephesus. Absolutely, unequivocally, they're from Ephesus. They were the ones who followed Paul wherever he went, stirring up trouble. Always trying to start a riot. It wasn't the Jews of Jerusalem. It wasn't the Jews from the church. It was the Jews from Asia who saw him and started a riot. Look, if you got a nationalistic fervor, you got a lot of people gathered together in one place, and one guy throws a match, it's going to go off. It's going to happen. And that's what's going on right now. They're, they're gathered around, they're, they're in this place, and listen to what they say. They say, men of Israel, help! This is a man who teaches all men everywhere against the people. That's the nation. You see the definite article, the people. It's not just any people, he's talking about the Jews. He's teaching people against the Jews. He's saying he, he doesn't know where he came from anymore. The law, that's talking about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And this place, that's the temple. So they're saying he's speaking against all these things. And then look what they say. Furthermore... He has also brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. What? All the devil needs is a a little bit of confusion and one big fat lie. That's all it takes. He brought a Gentile in here. Nobody asked. Nobody looked. Nobody checked. Did he really bring one? No, they just all freak out. Look what it says. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian. How would they know Trophimus? How would they know Trophimus the Ephesian? Simple. They were from Ephesus. Trophimus the Ephesian was a church leader in the church at Ephesus. The Jews from Asia were from Ephesus. They recognized Trophimus. They just assumed Paul must have brought him in the temple. Why? I have no idea. Because they were workers of iniquity and they wanted to destroy an opportunity for Paul to have an inroad to share the gospel. So they try to kill him. All the city was disturbed and people ran together. Have you ever seen those riots on TV? 
in the Middle East, you know, the ones in Egypt, the ones in Syria. And you think, these people don't even really know what they're doing, right? They're just running around hurting each other and doing crazy, dumb stuff, right? That's mob mentality. Same thing's happening here. All the cities are stirred. People run together. They don't even know what they're mad about, what they're fighting, why they're hitting this guy. All they know is everybody else is doing it. That's mob rule. So the mob rule takes over. They seized Paul, drug him out of the temple. Immediately the doors were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. The commander of the garrison, he's in the Antonio Fortress. So if, if this pulpit is the Temple Mount, the Antonio Fortress sit up here above it. So that the Romans could watch. Because if a revolution was going to begin... As it did throughout their history, it would always begin in the same place. Where would it start? Temple Mount. Still today, if there's trouble in Jerusalem, where does it start? Temple Mount. Something's going on in the Temple Mount, You, I promise, you'll hear about it on the news. Somebody tries to blow up the Dome of the Rock, guess what? You'll hear about that on the news. Temple Mount. So they have these, this guardhouse above it. They see something's happening. There's this... This riot has begun. So the Romans run down. Immediately they took soldiers and centurions. You see that word? Centurions is plural, right? A centurion was a man over a hundred. So there's at least 200 soldiers who run into the, the temple area to get Paul. They ran down to him. When they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now I don't know how long that took. But I would imagine Paul's a little bit of a mess right now. Oh, by the way, he is also about 61. That's his age at this point. So, for those of you guys in middle age, 61, that's about middle age, right? I'm trying to hang on. 50 for me is coming like a freight train. I don't know if I can stop it, but we'll see. Anyways, he's about 60 years of age at this time. He's taken a beating. They stopped beating him, and the commander came near and took him and commanded that he be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. They always arrest the dude getting beat by the mob. You you know that, right? They always arrest him. You cannot arrest the mob. What are you going to do with the mob? There's thousands of people running around doing dumb stuff. Forget about it. Grab the dude they're beating and get out. So they snatch him up, they put chains on him, they're, they're pulling him out, they're asking him, what are, who are you and what did you do? I imagine he's just trying to, to get his wits about him again. You know, there's a beating that just went on. It's going to take him a couple of minutes. We'll see that next week when we, when we look at uh, the address that he gives. It says, some in the multitude cried one thing and some another. Well, that's why we know. They didn't have any idea what they were doing. They were there, nationalistic fervor, some guy threw a match, boom, fire goes off, a dude's getting beat, nobody even knows why they're doing it. That's how the devil works. So he couldn't ascertain the truth because of the tumult, so he commanded him to be taken to the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. The mob's threshing in on him, they got to pick him up and carry him. For the multitude of the people followed after him saying, Away with him! That reminds you of anybody else? Happened in the same place. Right there at the opening of the Antonio Fortress, they brought Jesus there. They said, Away with him! 
We don't want him. They said away with Paul. We don't want him. Throw him out. Get rid of him. We don't want to have nothing to do with this. We don't want to have nothing to do with this person. In 12 years, the temple is going to be destroyed because the revolution begins. Titus Vespasian is going to come in and destroy Israel. In four years from this point, Annas, the high priest, is going to kill James, the just, the, the head of the church of Jerusalem. In 70 AD, when the siege is beginning and the, and the city is being crushed, Josephus tells us that there's a, a, an evening that Titus Vespasian releases his grip. And the day he releases his grip, the church, they got up and walked out. Because the day came when no longer could you be a Jew and be a Christian. They would throw you out. The day comes sometimes in our families when if you choose to be a Christian, they're going to disown you. The day will come when our nation one day will disown us. Once upon a time, we were a big part of the nation, weren't we? Not so anymore. They'd like to forget you. The sooner the better as far as they're concerned. The day will come. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. A man's enemies will be the ones of his own family. You have to choose what side you're on. Jesus said, you are either for me or you are against me. There is no middle ground. In or out. And if I'm going to be in, I want to be all in. Lock, stock, barrel, all the chips in the middle of the table. Standing up, getting excited about what's about to happen. That's where I want to live my life. That's where I want to be. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. I'm going to try. But I think the key to being able to rejoice and being exceedingly glad is recognizing where your joy is. Folks, if your joy is your house and your stuff, the day will come when some people will come take that away. They can take away your freedom. They can take away your things. You can lose everything, can't you? If your joy is in all that stuff, you'll find it very difficult to rejoice in the loss of it. If your joy is in Christ, it won't be so hard. Because they can't take that away. You get it? They can't take that away. They cannot strip you of your faith. They cannot strip you of your hope. They cannot strip you of any of that. You think it's not true? Ask Saeed Abedini in Evan Prison. They have taken everything from him. His wife, his children, his stuff, everything in life. Everything. Yet for him to live is Christ. For him to live is Christ. Even in the face of all things, he can still rejoice. He has an opportunity every day to tell someone in that prison about Jesus. He'd like to get out. Wouldn't you? But while he's there, he's got a job to do. Did the job change? Going to all the world, making disciples of all men. Did it change for Saeed in prison? 
has it changed for us? We got a job to do. The world is going to turn against us. But the Bible says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. Jesus said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they hated me, they will hate you too. The day will come. Time to choose sides. What side you on? What side, upon which side will you stand? The time will come when we will need to have a resolute spirit that says, I will not move. I will not turn. I will not change. I stand with Jesus Christ. The days will come. But it won't change our job. Same job today. Same job then. We just may move from a ministry in town to a prison ministry. It doesn't make any difference. The job didn't change. From this point in Paul's ministry, he will never be out of chains again. Ever. Rest of his life, he's going to die. He's going to get released briefly for a short period of time before Nero kills him. He's going to be a prisoner. He's going to write all them prison epistles. You know, Philippians, the ones we love. He's going to write all those. First and second Timothy. He's going to write all those during this time. He made his choice. I'm going to stand with Christ. No matter what. You know what he's going to get a chance to do? Preach to this mob. You know what else he's going to get a chance to do? Preach to a king. You know what else they're going to let him do? Preach to Caesar. All because he was willing to stand. We need to be willing to stand. Amen? So let's practice. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, for what your word is declaring. Lord, we pray we would be men and women of a resolute spirit that we have made a choice. I am surrendered to Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. God, I pray that that would be our heart. Lord, I pray that we would desire you more than anything. More than silver or gold, more than our families, more than our our. our occupation it'll be about you and we would take the opportunities that you give us to be men and women of god that you've called us to bear forth the truth of what jesus christ has done in my life to anyone who is willing to listen lord i pray that you would answer this prayer today in the hearing of everyone here every believer before they finish lunch you give them somebody to share the truth of the gospel with And I pray they would be faithful to do so. Lord, I pray, God, that you would be glorified and magnified. And I pray that we would realize our salvation is not going to come from our government. And our salvation is not going to come from our traditions. And our salvation is not going to come from our country. And our salvation is not going to come from any place. Save from the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and our surrender unto him. God, I pray that you would do a perfect work in us. Make us men and women willing and able to be what you're asking us to be. Until we see you, we got a job to do. So equip us to do our job to the best of our ability. Lord God, may we follow you with every breath, every step, as we give you honor and glory and praise in Jesus' name.
Amen.